This is Red State Blue Mom and your podcast host, Mama B, inviting you to explore local and national topics of interest as they pertain to life in Southern Appalachia. I'm honored you are listening today, and I'm hoping that after this podcast and every podcast to follow, you'll be able to say, you know, that was really interesting, kind of fun, and I learned something too. Together, we will explore a potpourri of topics on life in Southern Appalachian, East Tennessee, from the point of view of a blue-tinged independent voter, Southwestern transplant to the area, technologically deficient over 60-year-old, former stockbroker turned soccer mom, Girl Scout leader, community volunteer extraordinaire, beekeeper, elder caregiver, and suburban college-educated white woman. As we all know, life is colorful, and colors and shades of colors can have a wide range of meanings. As we are deep into the first 20 years of a new century, with a consequential presidential election just a few months away, Americans are defined by their geographic location as well as their politics. I live in a very deep red state, often called the buckle of the Bible belt, in southern Appalachia with all its lore, issues, history, and herstory, magnificence, and beauty. I love living where I do, but to others in this country and in the world, because I've seen a lot of this world— I'm greatly defined by where I live, whether I want to be or not. Do I sometimes see red while living in a red state? Oh, yes. Do I sometimes feel blue while living in a red state? Oh, definitely yes. But as I've learned from living in various states over my lifetime, and as I said previously, I've traveled a great deal of the world, there are good things and not so good things about every place. Most of us learned in elementary school art class that if you mix blue and red, you get the color purple. I'd like to think purple is the color of an independent voter, but what I've found is most people who consider themselves an independent voter, including me, are either red-tinged or blue-tinged. We also try as hard as we can to be open-minded in a current world that's looking for absolutes. If you are a fan of one of my favorite podcasts, Grits, by the way, just picked up by the Tennessee Holler, then you may be familiar with my commentaries as a travel correspondent for that podcast. I'd like to thank my daughter Afton and her co-host Anna for that opportunity, and thank Afton for encouraging me and helping me to start my own podcast. I'd also like to thank my One Grits Twitter fan who has given me faith that I can do my own podcast. So here's a shout out to my former neighbor and Girl Scout, Rachel. Frankly, I'm nervous and apprehensive about all that podcasting entails, but as Alexander Hamilton said in the Broadway play, I'm not throwing away my shot. So please bear with me. I have found that any situation in life or life experience is not necessarily a linear experience going from point A to point B, but is more like an abstract spiral, always with an acknowledged start, but maybe a not easily seen finish, and with lots of enriching and unexpected turns and curves along the way. I'm sure I will find this to be the case as I begin podcasting, 
As the proverb says, which happens to come from an ancient Chinese sage, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So let's take the first step and begin this podcast journey together. Many listeners may not know that a huge thank you is owed by all American women to the state of Tennessee. Because on August 18, 1920, 100 years ago this summer month, Tennessee was the 36th state to ratify the 19th Amendment, thus giving all American women in every state and territory the right to vote. This right became enshrined in our Constitution eight days later, on August 26, 1920, 72 years after the first Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, New York, which started the push for women's suffrage, the right to vote. This was after much sacrifice and fomenting of a rebellion by women and a few enlightened men, and after one vote that was changed in the Tennessee House of Representatives by a 24-year-old bachelor, originally an anti-suffrage legislator named Harry Byrne. His pro-suffrage mother, Feb, which is short for Phoebe, same last name, Byrne, wrote him a short letter which he received on the morning before Tennessee's final vote for ratification of the 19th Amendment. That note said, in quotes, Dear Harry, hurrah, and vote for suffrage. Don't keep them in doubt. I noticed some of the speeches against. They were bitter. I have been watching to see how you stood, but I have not noticed anything yet. End quote. She ended her letter by telling her son, be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat, that's Carrie Chapman Cat, a suffragist leader, put the rat in ratification. He had his mom's letter in his hand when he stunned the other men in the Tennessee House by voting aye to the ratification of the 19th Amendment. The day after the vote, Harry Byrne defended himself to the anti-vote, anti-suffrage people by saying, I believe we had a moral and legal right to ratify. I know a mother's advice is always safest for her boy to follow, and my mother wanted me to vote for ratification. Thanks to his mother's letter and advice, the course of American history, or should I say her story, was changed forever and for the better. The next time you visit downtown Knoxville, Tennessee, Go see the two statues commemorating Tennessee's gift to American women. One is the statue of prominent Tennessee suffragettes on Market Square, and the other is the statue of Feb and Harry Byrne located at Clinch Avenue and Market Street. At the suffragette statue in Market Square, look for Lizzie Crozier French. She's one of three Tennessee women who pushed for voting rights and represented East Tennessee right here in Appalachia. She also founded one of the oldest women's clubs in the South, Ossily Circle, and led efforts to get the University of Tennessee in Knoxville to go co-ed. When you are at the statues, maybe leave something that's yellow and purple. Those were the colors of the suffragettes. And yellow roses were the symbol of the pro-suffrage movement. Interestingly, the color used by the anti-suffrage, anti-vote movement was red. Harry Byrne, without his mother's knowledge and in the days before YouTube and cell phone cameras, 
wore a red rose and a suit jacket lapel when at the state capitol, until he changed his vote that fateful August morning 100 years ago. He definitely had to trash that red rose in his lapel after his yes vote. If you find yourself driving down Interstate 75 toward Chattanooga at some time or another in the future, look for the sign along the interstate about 45 minutes south of Knoxville that says Nyota, and do a fist pump and a holler for Fabbit and Harry Byrne as you go past because that little town in eastern Tennessee in southern Appalachia gave our country so much and women a hard-fought victory. But I would be very neglectful if I didn't tell you that for women of color, the fighting for voting rights in the U.S., especially in the South, continued for another 45 years from 1920 until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 became law. While the 19th Amendment took the word male out of the voting equation and enfranchised women's right to vote, minority women, African Americans, Native Americans, Latinas, and Asian women continued to be discriminated against in many states, but especially by the Southern legislatures that had put into effect Jim Crow laws after the Civil War. This was to prevent minorities from voting at all. Prior amendments to our Constitution that became law after the Civil War, but before the 19th Amendment, during the Reconstruction era, was the 14th Amendment, which determined who was a U.S. citizen, and the 15th Amendment that gave black men the right to vote. These two amendments, the 14th and 15th, did not help the most disenfranchised citizens of our country, minority women. There is a long history for why minority women really were not enfranchised as voters until much later than their white sisters. A short summary as to why this was the case would be, most early suffragettes came out of the abolitionist movement and had worked very hard alongside free black men and women, as well as male religious leaders and religious Americans, both male and female, to abolish slavery. But during the same time they were working to abolish slavery, the early white suffragettes felt it was more important for white women to gain the right to vote before their black sisters, as they originally felt they should have had the right to vote before males of color received it, with the 15th Amendment in 1870. And secondly, they did not want to antagonize Southern men who had already enacted all kinds of laws through their state legislatures, as previously mentioned. This was to suppress the black male vote to keep them from voting altogether. This was done through literacy laws, poll taxes, intimidation, and violence like lynching. So the white suffragettes wanting Southern legislatures to agree to voting rights for white women by ratification of the 19th Amendment really did not include black women in their plans. As a result, black women formed their own suffrage organizations to work on their voting rights, which they had to fight harder for than white women. When these black suffragettes would march with the white suffragettes, like in Washington, D.C., or in any state capital, especially in a southern state capital, they were told to be at the back of the march or the parade. As we all know, this was not right on any level. 
As I said earlier, it wasn't until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was signed into law by a Democratic president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, that all people of color, male and female, were able to vote in the way we think of today, which means not having to pay money to vote or a poll tax, not having to prove you can read and write, literacy requirements. Also, there was not to be any intimidation of minority voters so as to suppress their vote. But as we know, even during this year's election on November 3rd, President Trump has said he wants to have sheriffs and policemen at every polling station to make sure nothing bad happens in the way of voter fraud. Or as I'm thinking, it's a textbook play out of early voter intimidation and suppression tactics. Many of you are probably not aware that a number of civil rights leaders in the 1950s and 1960s who pushed and pushed and fought and fought for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the 1965 Voting Rights Act that I've mentioned before received their training in peaceful protest and how to register and educate illiterate African-American voters right here in Appalachia in East Tennessee. Those civil rights leaders with a Tennessee connection include Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, who completed her training shortly before she refused to give up her seat on a bus, and the recently passed away Congressman John Lewis, who was busted up pretty bad and jailed on the march from Selma to Montgomery after he crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge. The training these civil rights leaders received in peaceful civil disobedience and also how to mobilize and register black voters in the South was through the Highlander Research and Education Center in Newmarket, Tennessee, about 25 miles northeast of Knoxville. I suggest you Google the Highlander Research and Education Center to find out more about this amazing place. It's one of the cornerstones of the civil rights movement, also the labor rights movement of the 1930s, and its training and organizing prowess significantly helped both movements. I will warn you that you will also see information listed under a Google search from a website called fraudscrookscriminals.com and dailyrollcall.com regarding the Highlander Center being a, quote, Marxist destination in Tennessee seeking to train people and create a movement that will transform all of America into a Marxist dreamland rooted in the heart of the Bible Belt and also work to defeat President Trump in the coming election, end quote. If you're as old as I am, you know that all early civil rights leaders and those fighting for and organizing for civil or labor rights, for that matter, were called Marxists, communists, and socialists. Most, if not all, social justice movements and those fighting for social justice are labeled this way, especially by those wanting to keep the status quo for their own benefit and power structure. This includes the current Black Lives Matter movement for social justice being labeled Marxist, communist, socialist. When you Google the Highlander Center, you will also see a massive fire occurred there last year in 2019, and white power graffiti was found at the site. Hmm. Now, I'm going to be really cynical here, but who would have thought that finding white power graffiti at a place empowering social justice warriors would be possible in this day and age? As I start to wind down this podcast, 
I want to emphasize to all listeners, do what you have to do to be able to vote in this upcoming election on Tuesday, November 3rd. As I've always told my children, my friends, and most of my family members, a lot of women and men have sacrificed greatly. Many were beaten, jailed, starved themselves in jail as a form of protest. Many lost families and the ability to see their children for their views. Many fought for democracy and the right to vote in other countries, and some even gave the ultimate sacrifice in this country and abroad, their lives. This is so that all Americans can have the freedom to exercise their right to vote. It's a huge travesty to not honor their legacy. So get online and find out how to register to vote if you have never voted. Then make sure you have all the documents updated and a state-issue picture ID that you will need to vote, especially that they are all valid. Because not having all your ducks in a row could disenfranchise you at the voting site if you go in person or on a mail-in ballot if not filled out correctly. If you do not want to vote in person or are not able to vote in person, Google absentee voting in Tennessee or the state you live in to see if you meet the requirements to receive an absentee ballot. Tennessee has pretty strict guidelines for receiving an absentee ballot. This U.S. election is going to be like no other election we've ever seen in our lifetimes. For one thing, who knew President Trump and his appointees would go all postal on us when it comes to mail-in voting? Personally, I want to know my vote is going to be counted. I'm going to vote early so that maybe there won't be long lines, and therefore voting in person will be a bit safer during this pandemic. Tennessee early voting starts on October 14th and goes through October 27th. I'll be wearing a mask and using hand sanitizer off and on during the whole voting process. Remember, women and men gave their lives for our right to vote. So no one and nothing, and I do mean absolutely no one and absolutely nothing short of death, is going to stop me from voting this election. And nothing should stop you from voting either. Voting is a hard-fought-for right, especially for us ladies and minorities. Make a statement and do it in the voting booth, please. Thanks to everyone for listening today. I also want to thank Landon, my audio engineer, for all his help and kindness. Don't confuse this Landon with my son by the same name. Remember, I said early on that I'm technologically deficient, so the only way to get in touch with me is to send me an email. Send it to redstatebluemom at gmail.com. I'd like to leave you with a few thoughts to ponder and take to heart. You can't go wrong in life if you treat everyone the way you would like to be treated. And please be kind to everyone you meet, because you do not know what battles they are fighting on any given day. Thank you.